which began on Palm Sunday. This week is so vitally important that the gospel writers spent half of their material just talking about and writing about the final week of Jesus here on this planet. It's that important. And one of the things I've discovered is that um, preparation, preparation um, shapes your celebration. So as I prepare myself during this week for Easter, uh, my celebration is different than if I do not prepare and just read through and think about and contemplate everything that Jesus encountered in that final week. Now, this week's been a little bit different because we went to Raleigh, North Carolina to, to see our daughter who's about to give birth here in another month and our granddaughter. And uh, we left here on Saturday afternoon, hit this massive snowstorm. Um, and so we finally made it to Withful, uh, Virginia. And uh, we get there, everything's shut down because you can't get to anything. It's kind of up on the hill, and all the restaurants are up on hills. Nothing's been plowed. I mean, we were literally on a, you know, on 77. At that point, it was a single lane road, unplowed, and it's us and one other car. And we couldn't even see to get off to the exit. And so Marla's like, my, my windshield wipers by this time are like two blocks of ice. So, and the snow is coming down so hard and so fast and it's blowing right at us. She literally, like a dog, uh, lays her head out the window to try to figure out where we get off on the exit because you can't even see the ramp. And if we miscalculate, we're in a ditch and we're, we're stuck. So we, we get off on the ramp, and nothing's been plowed, and everything's on a hill. So the, the restaurants have all shut down. Our, our hotel's on a hill, and uh, one truck is out there trying to plow. We get up to the front of the hotel, but the, the snow is so deep, I can't even get into the parking lot. And so I take a running start, can't make it, get around the backside. So we get in the hotel. Everything's shut down, but one restaurant right beside the hotel. We go, we eat. There's four of us in this restaurant that normally they, the waitress said there's normally six of us in here, but I'm the only one because they sent everybody home. Uh, we walk back to our hotel, lights are flickering, we get in our hotel, and sure enough, uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, the power goes out and never comes back on. So that was the start to our Holy Week. Um, so we, we get up on Sunday morning, uh, you know, hey, I just texted my daughter and said, listen, we're coming in hot and raw because we got no showers here, we got nothing. So we, we, we make it there, and... Uh, do you know what it's like to spend Holy Week with a two-year-old who loves Frozen? Let's just say I spent a lot of time playing Frozen uh, dolls, uh, reading books, and a lot of time with my granddaughter um, because she just loves her papa. Wagon rides. So I would study in the evenings and just asking the Lord, Lord, what, what, do we, what do we want to study this year on Good Friday? And uh, God just kind of impressed upon me, let's just kind of go back to the basics. And uh, let's look at the basics of the crucifixion and maybe more importantly, how people responded to it. Those that were there that day, how did they respond to what was happening because there is a direct correlation and reflection of how we often respond 
when we think about the crucifixion of Jesus. So on Holy Week, Sunday is Palm Sunday, and thankfully Ray was here, and I know you got a great message on Palm Sunday at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, and he set up headquarters in Bethany, about 20 to 30 miles from Jerusalem, and of course he would be there because his friends were there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, other extended friends, and that's kind of his, uh, his headquarters for the last week. And so Monday he comes back into Jerusalem and he curses a fig tree because it's producing no fruit, and he does this second cleansing in the temple because he is sending the message that that, this, um, that re- this religion has become hollow, it's become empty, it's become nothing more than a ritual, uh, but there's no substance behind it. And Tuesday is his day of anointing. It's when he is back in Bethany and Mary anoints Jesus with perfume and made of nard, which is a burial spice. And then Wednesday is the teaching day. And uh, Jesus spends a lot of time teaching, and the scholars are asking him questions like, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus is reflecting back about loving God and loving others. And then, of course, Thursday is Passover, in which Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples in preparation uh, for his crucifixion, which happens on Friday. And Saturday is the day of death. To those who were there, to the disciples, and now this was it. They never really fully comprehended the the resurrection until they actually experienced it with Jesus. And so for them, it was was a day in the Jewish realm. It's called Shiva. When someone died in your family, people would sit Shiva with you. They would come to your house, and for seven days, they would sit and mourn with you quietly. And then there would be great wailing, you know, they, they would even bring in wailers, those who would be wailing the death of the, of the person, and, but the, your closest friends would, sh- would sit with you, kind of like the friends of Job, you know, they came and they sat Shiva and, and Job was greatly comforted by, their, comforted by their presence until they started speaking and then it got him all messed up. I hope that tomorrow you'll take a little bit of time and just sit Shiva with Jesus. And mourn a little bit. You know what it's like to mourn. You've buried loved ones. And feel the feelings. And drink in the emotions that um, those on that holy week must have been experiencing. Now, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 27. because uh, Everything I'm going to share with you comes out of this text in Matthew chapter 27, where Matthew gives the account of, of Jesus. And, uh, you know, very few people debate uh, whether or not Jesus died because there are so many historical records of that event transpiring. But people do. Uh, they do question um, why he died. And the purpose of his death is actually a, a great debate that goes on uh, even yet today. Gandhi wrote in his autobiography in 1894, he said this, I can accept Jesus as a martyr. His death on the cross was certainly a good example, but that there was anything else to his suffering, like dying as a substitute for sinners, this my heart can never accept. Uh, a great atheist, uh, Bart Ehrman, once was asked the question, What would make you believe in Jesus? What would make you give your life to him? And his response was that Jesus, had Jesus fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth, I would do that. But instead he died, which represented 
his failure, the failure of his mission. Richard Hawkins calls the Christian understanding of the cross divine child abuse. Of course, many people are not as openly hostile uh, in their thoughts concerning Christ but, and why, the why behind his death. But you hear people say things like, well, you know, God, I understand. Uh, Jesus, okay, he, was, he gave us a great example to live by, certainly a, a good moral person. Uh, but I don't just get the big deal about Jesus and his death. I just really don't understand why uh, his death would have any impact or significance to my life in the here and now. That's something that transpired thousands of years ago. What in the world would the death of a Jewish rabbi have to do with me today? Have you ever heard? Maybe you've not heard it in those words, but certainly in people have expressed it in, in certain ways that let you know that they just don't understand why there's all this hoopla about Jesus' death and why that would have any impact or influence upon my life in the here and now. So that's kind of where I'm going to press in today is concerning how Matthew puts the why behind the crucifixion, but then I really want us to look at the responses of the people uh, who were there because I think God has a message for us tonight through that. So um, picking up in Matthew 27 and uh, verse 27, it says, after and of course, this is verse 26. And after ordering Jesus to be flogged, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spat on him. They took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. Now, when we talk about the crucifixion, oftentimes we tend to kind of breeze right through this. In fact, even when you, the writers of the Gospels talk about the crucifixion, they just kind of like, and they crucified him, right? And, and they crucified him. Like it was just, that's what happened. But this part is also equally cruel and terrifying, you notice it says that there was a whole company of soldiers. That would be 20 to 30 soldiers that are gathering and pressing in on Jesus, circling him like a mob, kicking him and punching him and mocking him. Think about a staff wrapping against your head, the most sensitive part of your body uh, in, in that is if you're you know, receiving blows to the head, how devastating that is. And it's like these bullies are surrounding this helpless child in a schoolyard and they're just like coming upon him like a gang who who's finds delight in bringing great pain upon a person. I mean, and there, this is going on until probably he is barely even conscious any longer. That's just the startup. And when they were finished, Jesus would have been barely able to stand up covered in spit, humiliated, quivering in pain, and it says they flogged him, which the whole process of crucifixion has been designed in order to inflict the maximum amount of pain and shame on a person that you could possibly inflict on someone without killing them at least initially in the flogging, and the, or allowing them to slip into unconsciousness. So in the flogging, it was about how, how much pain can we inflict on this person in preparation for their crucifixion that they're going to experience, but we don't want them to be unconscious. And so the, the Persians invented it, uh, the Romans perfected it, flogging, crucifixion. 
And uh, there are several articles that have been written by the American Medical Association concerning flogging as well as crucifixion. And of course, we know that they used a, a whip called a flagrum or the cat of nine tails with their leather strips. And they had a metal ball on the end and they would take like sharp um, uh, splinters of sheet bone and, and put it through, you know, the, um, the, the uh, leather straps and they would, course, they would hoist your arms up like this and stretch your back as tight as they could so that a soldier on each side, as they are lashing you, they're literally just cutting you to ribbons. And their goal is to weaken the victim to a state just short of death or unconsciousness. And the, in the American Journal Association, an article said this, as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the sheep bones would cut into the skin and uh, tissues of the victim. Eventually, the lacerations of the whip would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. And then they crucified him. Which means that he has a beam struck across his back, about 200 pounds. And be, be aware of this. This is a, not a, a freshly uh, made beam. This is a recycled beam, beam, which means there probably have been maybe 20, 30, 40 other people who have been crucified on this beam before Jesus, which means that um, it, is, it, it reeks with the gore of the previous victim. It is roughly hewn and full of jagged edges and splintered. And then you're paraded through the streets for people to jeer at you, to mock you, to hurl insults, to spit upon you. Uh, and so you have two soldiers in the front, two soldiers in the back, as he is making his way to Calvary. That's just the beginning. And it says in verse 20, 32, as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced him to carry his cross. And so obviously Jesus was so weakened by the beating, and he eventually collapsed and a random man is pulled from the crowd, chosen to carry his cross. And the question for me is, uh, why did Matthew give us his name? Why would Matthew give us, in fact, Luke gives us even more information. Not only does he give us his name, he gives us the name of his son, Rufus. You see, um, names in the Gospels function like a first century footnote, because as the Gospels are coming out, these, these, these witnesses are still alive. People could go and ask and question, hey, did this really happen? Did this really take place? Because I've heard people all the time say things like, well, you know, you cannot trust the Bible. You cannot trust the Word of God because after all, it was written, as one man told me, 400 years after the events. You could put anything in there. Uh, 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 not 400 years after the events, my friend. Not even close. And so... Um, I mean, the gospel Mark puts in here indicates that Simon is the, is the um, father of Rufus. And again, he tells us the name because here, get this, in Romans 16, 13, Paul greets a man named Rufus by name. And scholars believe and have good reason to believe that this was the son of Simon so that uh, if anyone wanted to question what was going on or what happened or what transpired, they could go back and ask the witness or the son of a witness. 
And it says in verse 33, when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, in the Hebrew, the Latin word for skull is Calvaria, which we get our word Calvary. Historians speculate this, you know, it's a hillside uh, that looked kind of like a skull. They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. All right, so wine mixed with gall was a very popular narcotic in that day and time. It was kind of like a painkiller. So the question, again, that I raises for me is why did Jesus refuse to, why did he refuse to take this? Is he against painkillers? Uh, I don't think that's it. I, I, you remember um, that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that there Jesus was praying, and he, um, it says that as he was in the garden and he was struggling with the issue of the cross, and, and, and uh, he's praying and God's not responding, Lord, uh, you know, is there any other way? Let, let's, let's find another way. Is there any other way to do this? And, and God's not responding. And Jesus is relying upon his friends, his disciples to help him out. And so every time he goes back, what? They're sleeping, right? They fall asleep on the job. And, and, and the Bible says that Jesus, it was like he was almost to the point of death. It was, it was, like, it was like he was tasting death for the first time. But more than that, it was that the father began at that point to begin the separation that was going to, t- to transpire on the cross. And so it was kind of like a foretaste of what he was going to experience through his crucifixion. And so God gave Jesus a glimpse of the cross before he went to it so that you and I could see the fact that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, even knowing what he was about to encounter and what he was about to experience because of radical love. That we might... we might understand the depth of his love. And sometimes we read these things and we, we've heard these things so many times, we just kind of like sit back and we just like yawn and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, right, okay, that's great, that's wonderful. And we rev- never really just like sit down anymore and just really think about this and, and try to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the disciples or those who were there that day or even in our lives in the here and now. I mean, we... We have never had to make such a sacrifice for anyone like this, let alone our enemies. We can barely conjure up enough um, fortitude within us or um, courage to forgive somebody that is, who has hurt us in some way because of something they said. And here Jesus is is about to display this incredible, incredible act of love. And verse 35, it just says, and then they crucified him. And so you know how crucifixion works. It's designed, again, to keep the victim alive as much in as much pain as possible for as long as possible without letting them slip into shock. It involves things like dizziness and cramping and thirst and sleeplessness and hunger and traumatic fever and humiliation and shame and piercing wounds and ripped tendons. And, and so for some people, you know, because the Romans had so perfected this method of execution, they, could, they were skilled at keeping people alive for days. Of course, we know that Jesus only lasts six hours on the cross because once the, his payment for sin was finished, it was finished, and, and he breathed his last breath, and as they went to break his legs to ensure that he's, that he's already dead, and so they, they thrust the, the sword in his side to make sure. But think about this, as, we, as you are lapsing in and out of consciousness 
uh, they would take you through another cycle. Uh, so as you are crucified, obviously there's nails in your feet and in your wrists. And by this time, your shoulders are out of joint. And the only way that you can breathe, because you're normally, you're just slumping down. And the only way to breathe is to push yourself up to gasp because you're literally suffocating and is to gasp some air and just long enough so that then you, you're, you're slumping back down because you're in and out of, of a state of almost unconsciousness. And this is going on for hours. But every time you move up that cross and every time you move down that cross, that shredded back is up and down. That's the splinters on this old wooden cross. I, I can't even begin to imagine. And blood vessels around your stomach become so swollen and gorged with sure-charged blood and and the muscle cramping is, is unfathomable. Radical love, searing pain, feelings of suffocation, a back torn open, shredded, and on a cross. And that's what Jesus was pointing to when he, on Thursday night, gathered his disciples to celebrate Passover when he said, this, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is given for you for the new covenant. He drank the cup of God's wrath against our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, 5, all of our small acts of rebellion, our lies, our refusal to allow him to be in charge, to let him be the center of our lives, to steal the glory of Christ for ourselves. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was placed on him, and by his stripes we are healed. And people say, well, this is really moving, but what would his suffering have to do with my sin? If you ask a Muslim, they would say, why would God need someone to die to forgive me of my sin? You see, the choice to die for your sin is a choice to absorb the cost of your sin. See, if you slander me in some way and you just like get it out there on Facebook and, and everywhere else you can find any social media, I have one of two choices. I can either retaliate and go out and slander you in equal form so that you suffer, feel as much suffering and pain as I felt because you have slandered me, or I can choose to forgive. I can choose to absorb the cost, to absorb the pain of what you've brought into my life, and I can choose to absorb that and, and forgive. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is absorbing the pain. He is absorbing the cost. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it is a reminder to us that if we just think that somehow that, you know, like this little itty-bitty cup here represents a thimble of my sin, oh, that's all the sin Jesus had to die for me, you're sadly mistaken. I can't even begin to imagine how much of my sin has been absorbed by God in a lifetime. And in verse 46, it says, 
right before he died, Matthew tells us a couple of things that he uttered. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima shabakani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, what began in the Garden of Gethsemane and is now brought to completion. In verse 50, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And Luke tells us that it was there that he says, it is finished. Greek word to telestai, you know, it means the debt has been paid in full. It's an accounting term. Verse 51, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now think about this. At the moment it is finished, this curtain that separated humanity from the holiness of God, woven four inches thick, 72 blue, red, purple cords are woven together, four inches thick, that is literally sealed people off from God has now been split and opened the way for you and I to enter into God's presence. He was cursed for your sin, humiliated in our place, accused in our place, condemned in our place, defiled in our place, beaten, abandoned, and killed in our place. And so what Jesus did on the cross is absolutely staggering to me. And whenever I come to Holy Week and I really try to focus on that and really try to just kind of put myself there, what would it have been like? What would I have done had I been there that day, right? How would I have responded to this one who is claiming to be king of the Jews? How would I have responded that day? It is so easy for us to sit back and say, well, you know, if I'd been there, I would have understood it all. I I would have been doing everything I could to try to rescue Jesus from going to the cross. I don't think so. And so let's look at the people and how they responded uh, to this event. The suffering criminals. Down in verse 38, it says that... um, there are two criminals. They were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And, and then there were people yelling insults and shaking their heads and saying, you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down off the cross. And down in verse 44, it says, in the same way, the robbers were crucified with him, also heaped insults upon him. Now, we know, according to the gospel of Luke, that one of those robbers with Jesus finally comes to the point of repentance. And he kind of understands, and he says to the other guy who's the criminal, hey, listen, we're getting what we deserve. This man is innocent. And that's what true repentance is. That's what it looks like. He says the suffering we are undergoing, we, we deserve. And so when I, when I come to the cross for salvation, I understand that what Jesus suffered on my behalf is exactly what I deserved. And the only one who truly deserved to feel no pain was Jesus who voluntarily entered into it on our behalf. And so you can either conclude that your pain means that in in life, because here's the big pushback with people, about Jesus is, well, and about God is, but there's so much pain and there's so much suffering. If God is a God of love, why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? Uh, If he can't do anything about it, then I understand that. But if he can do something about it, don't you think it's a little bit cruel that he doesn't do anything about the pain and suffering that goes on every single day in this world? 
you can conclude that your pain and your suffering means that Jesus really is not who he says he is or has the power to save and to heal. Or, or rather than looking for explanations, when I look at the cross, what the cross shows me about my pain is this. It cannot mean, it cannot mean that God does not care or that God has lost control. Because he inflicted pain intentionally upon his son so that he might drink the cup of God's wrath so that you and I might be forgiven. And so hopefully, as like the, the criminals, that you're like the one criminal who says, you know what, I come to realize that this is really what I deserve, but Jesus stood in my place, which is the essence of the gospel, and through repentance and belief in him, now I've experienced this gift of radical love of God's forgiveness. And we celebrate that in the Lord's table. But then there is creation itself. You'll notice how creation is quaking under the weight of God's dis display of glory. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness covers the land, and then there's this great earthquake. You see, there's an earthquake when, when a force is put upon something that it cannot withstand. It's like if I went out on thin ice and the weight of my body, the ice could not withstand the weight of my body, it would give way. So this incredible act of God, even creation that is groaning and awaiting its day of redemption, could not stand against this holy act of God, could not withstand against it, and had to literally like shake and quiver in the act that God was displaying through his radical love. Wow. And then it says there were tombs that were opened. Verse 52, and bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and they came out of the tomb after his, and they were entered into the, after his resurrection and entered into the holy city and peered to many. And what about the outsiders who recognize what he's doing for them? Who is it that recognized it? I find it interesting that the only two people who got it who the Jews considered outsiders and second-rate citizens was the Gentile soldiers and the women. Disciples didn't get it. The Jewish leaders didn't get it. And so it says when some of those standing heard it, they say, he's calling for Elijah. And when the centurion and those who were with him in verse 54 were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they were terrified and said, truly this man was the son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, looked after him, were there watching from a distance. They got it. Why? Because of humility. Humility will cause you to raise your head up, to look for something beyond yourself. You know, my little two-year-old granddaughter has a grandfather who is a pilot for Delta. And um, she has gone to the airport many times and sees planes. She calls them pains. Pain. Pain, Papa. Like, pain? You in pain? No, plane. Okay. So she, she, when nobody else notices, she's always looking up for planes, right? So it's the minute she sees one, pain, pain, pain. And, and that's kind of like the centurions. All of a sudden, 
they are arrested by what is happening around them, and so they, they recognize their own personal weakness in the midst of this, and they recognize their need for Jesus. Surely this is the Son of God, and the women are there. They're, they're, they, they know that grace flows downhill. And so the religious people, especially the, those in positions of power, like the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're blind to the gospel's teaching of forgiveness. And then there is Simon, and this is really, uh, let me wrap it up with Simon, um, Simon as serene, because this is really what, where I wanted to come to. Wouldn't you like to have been Simon? At least he carried the cross, right? At least I'm doing something positive in the midst of this horrendous act of God. Why? He's selected, he's pulled out, he's carrying the cross. I think Matthew puts this picture in here because he wants to give us a picture of the early church, Jesus' followers, and what we are going to do. We are going to willingly pick up the cross of Jesus and follow him. Isn't this what Jesus brought it all down to? Who's going to pick up the cross and follow me? Who's going to carry the cross and die to self and follow me? Who's going to take the message into the world? You know, it was Martin Luther who said, it doesn't matter if Jesus died a thousand deaths. If nobody hears about it, it means nothing. And so one of the ways that we as followers of Jesus Christ celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf as we have experienced this incredible radical love of Christ in our hearts, as God has forgiven us of all of our sins and has pushed away all of our shame and has removed all of our guilt, and as we think about that and we contemplate that and we celebrate that through celebrating the Lord's table, it is a reminder to us, beautiful are the feet who take the good news of the gospel to the world around them. And so there are those who are called out from among us and to carry their cross and to commit themselves to lead leaving their homes and heading five, 7,000 miles across the ocean in order to tell other people about Jesus. Why? Because they want to leave their family behind? Because they, you know, that's just really what they wanted to know. It was God's calling on their life. And, and we were to take up our cross and, and to take the good news of Jesus to our community and to our neighbors and to our friends and to our families. And when you carry the cross, you take a step of reaching out to somebody and you're, un, you're willing to undergo a sacrifice Because we sacrifice all the time, right? As followers of Jesus, you sacrifice. You sacrifice your time to be here tonight. Our worship team sacrificed their time to to lead us in worship. And every single week, you sacrifice in many different ways in order that we, uh, as a church, as a body of believers, are coming together and growing together and trying to get the word of, of the gospel of Jesus out to others that they might experience the same radical love that we have experienced because of what? Because of the power of the gospel. You know, there's a movie out now called I Can Only Imagine. And Bart Miller, who's the leading uh, singer and songwriter of this song for uh, Mercy Me, he sang this song a few years ago um, before the president and members of Congress at a national prayer breakfast. And he said, this is the reason why I wrote the song, and this is the reason why I believe in the power of the gospel, 
Because growing up, his dad was an alcoholic. He was abusive. He was a deadbeat. He didn't want anything to do with his son. And so years and years went by, and finally, through the power of the gospel, they were, they were reconciled together. And his dad experienced the power of the gospel, and all of a sudden, God radically changed his life to the point that, the, that Bart said, you know what, I, I love being around my dad. He became the man that I always dreamed of. And the other reason why I know and embrace the power of the gospel is because God gave me the ability to forgive him of everything that I hated him for. It's easy to condemn others for their heinous crimes, such as the religious leaders with Jesus. The only reason we haven't turned on Jesus is because we haven't yet chosen whether he is Lord or us. We hear messages about Jesus' love, and we hear about Jesus' absolute control over our lives and surrendering to his lordship, and we shout amen. But for far too many of us, when we leave church, we literally, during the week, we run our own lives, we call our own shots, uh, we don't let him govern a single thought or action. Because in every heart, there is a throne and there is a cross. And if, if, listen, if self is sitting on your throne, Jesus is still on the cross. If Jesus is sitting on the throne of your heart, then self is on the cross. And listen, if you haven't made that choice yet, you will. All right, you will. Someday you will make that choice. Wherever it is right now for you, I'm not sure, but at that moment you choose to die to self and surrender to Jesus as your Lord on the throne of your heart. You choose to live for the glory of God, and the glory of God is synonymous with evidence. Glory is God's fingerprint, proof of his presence, evidence of him being among us. And so Jesus' death on the cross is, the, is God's glory displayed because it is the evidence, the proof of God's radical love for us as a good, good father. And the cross is doing what people don't do, and the cross is giving, God giving himself for us that we, we can be forgiven and spend eternity with him. And nothing brings more glory to God, more evidence of God, than sacrificial love and sacrificial living. That's where we come in, right? And so when Jesus challenges us with things like, look, you've heard it said that you shall no longer love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's no glory, there's no evidence of him when you love others in return for those who only love you in return. Anybody can do that. We all love people who love us back, but what about your enemies? What about those who do not love you in return? How about those people? And so there is evidence of Jesus sitting on the throne of our heart and we dying to self because we are willing to pick up our cross and to love even the unlovable. And the glory of God was shown through Christ's death, loving his enemies, even praying for his enemies because we were all his enemies. And while we were enemies, through the death of his son, we were being reconciled back to the Father. And so when we... Partake in the Lord's Supper as we close out our time together. I want you to open up to Isaiah 53. And I want you to think, you know what? Would you come and you take of the Lord's elements? And whether you're here at the front and kneeling, look, get your face headed towards the cross. 
And read those words out of the prophet Isaiah. And look upon the price of your salvation that was freely given. And you're going to see your reason for living. Your reason for living is to bring glory to God. To express God's radical love through you into the lives of others. So let's bow our heads for a moment. Father, we thank you. We embrace you. We are humbled by you. We are loved by you. And we are everything in between. I pray, Lord, that as these these pictures, as we've just kind of relived a little bit about what Jesus has done for us on Good Friday, and how maybe we would have responded. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us as followers of yours to respond by living for your glory, by letting Jesus have his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. And we will pick up our cross daily and die to self and follow him wherever he leads. May our thoughts be his thoughts. May our actions be his actions. May our responses be his responses. May we be so in love with Jesus and so close to him. May may we continue to seek his face more than just his hand. And I pray, Father, that as we come and we celebrate your table here tonight, that we will be impacted and reminded once again of this radical, radical statement of love through the cross of Calvary and that we might live our lives in light of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And Father, as we read out of your word, out of Isaiah 53, may God you bring that word to life. May you just enable us to feel something burning within us as we take of these elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. May it be more than just something that we just do without even engaging our minds or our emotions. May you arrest us through your word, through these elements as we celebrate what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bible, stand up, make your way, take the bread, the cup, read, starting in verse 5, read as much as you want as you're partaking here at the front. You can go back to where you're seated if you like. You got the whole auditorium, okay? So wherever you like to go, just take a few moments, just as you're partaking together with friends, family, whatever, um, just start reading. Maybe have somebody read those passages, a few of them, just as a reminder, as a reflection of what Christ has done on our behalf. So come, let's celebrate the radical love of God for us because we have this incredible, incredible Heavenly Father who loves us in such a deep way.
I want to leave us uh, with one last passage tonight. It's uh, found in Psalm 103. It says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Now you'll notice that that was in one breath. He forgives all your sins. He has the power to heal your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things. The Lord is compassionate and he is gracious. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. And we'll see you on Easter. There's a resurrection. <laughs>